Welcome to the Nest Day podcast from 2X Wealth Group. This is Lisa James, and I'm here with my partner, Lori Zager. We're a team at Ingalls & Snyder, LLC. Today, we're going to talk about inflation. TLDR? Yep. <laughs> For those who want to get the quick summary, we have only four points. One, inflation is likely to be persistent. Two, the era of cheap goods, cheap energy, and cheap labor are really a thing of the past. Three, the Fed can only control demand. They are not in a position to control supply. Fourth, commodity cycles are quite distinct from general business cycles and recessions, and they can often provide outperformance relative to the S&P 500, even during a recession. We hate to sound like a broken record and ruin the party, but inflation presents a problem that's not easily going to be fixed. We didn't believe that inflation was transitory. And even if it has peaked, which is not clear, we think it's persistent. And that's really the issue. There's a great quote which says, inflation as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman. And that was Ronald Reagan who said that, who experienced uh, as president the inflation of the 1980s. So Lisa, why don't you first explain what inflation is? Well, if you've gone to the grocery store lately or filled up your tank with gas, you certainly understand inflation from a man on the ground point of view. Almost everything seems to cost more. Inflation is too much demand for a given level of supply. And that causes prices to rise. And inflation can actually be either demand or supply-driven or a combination of the two. So think about warrior tickets after Steph Curry joined the team. The supply of tickets didn't change, but the amount of people who wanted to see the team play went up. So that meant that prices went up. So in this particular scenario, inflation of ticket prices was demand-driven. But inflation can also be supply-driven. Supply chain disruptions from COVID caused shortages of cars, toilet paper, and chicken. We all saw that. More recently, we've seen energy and food prices rise in part because of supply shortages caused by the war in the Ukraine. So in this case, demand remained about the same, but the supply of these things shrank. And therefore, the prices for those items went up. So Lisa, why are we bothering to even talk about the difference between supply-driven and demand-driven inflation? Well, the source of inflation can have a really big impact on your ability to control it. If inflation is demand-driven, it's possible to reduce demand. But if inflation is due to shortages of supply that cannot be fixed, that is much more difficult to affect. So whose responsibility is it to control inflation anyway, and how do they go about doing it? The Federal Reserve is the U.S. entity that's responsible for controlling inflation. Their powers were created in 1913 from the Federal Reserve Act, and they've increased over time, usually after some sort of recession like the Great Depression or the Great Recession. Their mandate is twofold. It is to promote maximum employment 
and to create stable prices. The Fed is not currently really worried about the unemployment picture. What they're worried about is the inflation picture. And so what do they do to try and and fix this inflation problem? Well, their tools are a bit crude, you might say. They can raise interest rates to make borrowing less appealing. They can remove monetary stimulus from the financial system by halting bond purchases. And I will say that that's new because during the Depression, the Fed wasn't buying bonds. So this is a, a bit of an experiment, if you will. And then they can... I call it jawboning. Lisa calls it clear statements about their future intentions to control inflation. But it's a tool that they use as well. And, and it uh, has a big influence on the market, that tool. Absolutely. And then we've had very major market moves every time the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, has made statements in the last two months. So, you know, they use every tool at their disposal, whether it's real or just attitude. (laughs) Well, they're trying to keep those inflation expectations from becoming anchored, so to speak, and that's one way to do it. So will the Fed be successful in getting this job done? The first thing everyone needs to know is that the Fed's tools are limited. Right now, people think the Fed is going to raise the interest rates enough that the economy will slow down and it's going to reduce demand for both goods and services. You probably heard the term demand destruction. That's what that means. The Fed is trying to calm down demand. That's right. And they're willing to do it even if it means that we'll have a recession. So in a recent speech, Jerome Powell showed that he wanted to avoid the stop-and-go inflation policies that occurred in the 1970s. There was a very big inflation problem during that period, and what happened was the Federal Reserve raised interest rates, thought they had fixed inflation, and then stopped raising interest rates. Inflation came back, and then they had to raise interest rates even further and create a much more severe recession. The stop and go of the late 70s, early 80s was created by two different Federal Reserve chairmen. The first was Arthur Burns, and who was not successful in killing inflation. And the second one was Paul Volcker, who was. People say that Jerome Powell wants to be known as Paul Volcker and not as Arthur Burns. In fact, he keeps the book that Paul Volcker wrote called Keeping At It on his desk. So it's no surprise that in several press conferences, Powell has actually said the Fed must keep at it until the job is done. So far, the actions that the Fed has taken have started to slow some parts of the economy. We've seen layoffs in certain industries. Uh, We've seen a slowdown in the housing market. And also, there's been a really dramatic change in the supply of money in the financial system. After COVID, when the government did their fiscal stimulus and the Fed cut interest rates and bought bonds, there was a giant jump in the amount of money in the system. So after 2020, we had a classic example of too much money chasing too few goods leading to inflation. The change we've seen recently is money supply growth has returned to pre-COVID levels, which is quite a dramatic reversal. But will that be enough to solve the inflation problem? We don't think so. So what's the problem? The problem is that the era of cheap goods, cheap energy, and cheap labor are gone. We got cheap goods from China. 
And uh, I, I think relations with China are the worst that they've been in my life. So I think there's political reasons why we're not going to get cheap goods from China. Cheap energy, really, one could argue that we've got had cheap em- energy in part because of fracking that happened in the United States, or we would have probably had higher energy prices a long time ago. Absolutely. The amount of oil produced by the United States after the financial crisis had a giant impact on the price of, of energy. Cheap labor occurred because we had an international economy and we could get very cheap goods because they were produced by people in places like China and Vietnam where wages are far lower. But those cheap goods come at a price. Our own workers got boxed out of jobs that paid a living wage. But it's really the the whole power has changed really from the management's to the workers, and you can see starting it. to change. It's, it's definitely is. You can mm-hmm. you can see it. You can see it in, you know, it used to be. <laughs> heard someone say that when the head of Goldman Sachs told you to get back to work, you said yes, sir. Now it's like I'll do that from home, and you know what? They're glad to have you. And so it's really things have changed. So I heard a, st- a statistic that if you kept your current job you got a pay increase of like an on average of 6%. And if you move jobs, you got a pay increase on average of 8%. So cheap labor is gone for, I think, a number of reasons. And I guess the, the bottom line reason is in the developed world, we're not replacing ourselves. And that's the biggest problem. We've got a bunch of old people running around. The Federal Reserve can't fix the labor problem, the goods, the cheap goods problem, or the cheap energy problem. These are all supply-driven. So who else is going to help? Well, there are a few people who've tried to jump in here, sometimes for good and sometimes for bad. So what has Congress done, for example? Well, in the end of 2021, they called all the CEOs of the major oil companies in front of Congress and scolded them for misleading the public about climate change and not doing more to restrict oil and gas spending. Then, just six months ago, in April of this year, the same companies were brought before Congress and scolded once again. Only this time, it was for not increasing their spending in their traditional oil and gas businesses. Well, that's pretty confusing, and it's confusing for the companies. How can they invest their money in drilling and refining when the rules keep changing? And the other person, in fact, who can try and influence supply is the president. So, Lori, why don't you give an example of what President Biden's doing here? Well, he is releasing the strategic petroleum. He said he was going to use all tools at his disposal as appropriate to address the barriers to providing Americans affordable, secure energy supply. So he announced in March of 2022 that a million barrels of oil per day would be released for six months. In July, he announced another 20 million barrels. From the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Absolutely. And according to a Forbes article that was just written this month, the level of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve has never been lower than 450 million barrels since December 1984 until today. And while it's great that these releases have occurred and dropped energy prices for Americans at the, at the gas pump, which was obviously Biden's intention, we do have a lingering question of what happens on the other side when these releases from the SPR actually have to be replaced. 
and the government starts to be a buyer of oil. Recently, the government said that they would be a buyer of oil to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve at about $80 a barrel. So if you don't own any oil stocks, you might look for $80. Sounds like a good time to add some exposure. So I guess the next question is, if the Fed is actually successful and creates a recession. No, that's not true. They're not trying to create a recession. But well, if, let me say if, they're if, successful if the in demand persists, destruction. Right. If they persist and they persist too far and create a recession. I bet money they're going to yes. create a recession. But I would whatever. say the recession's looking pretty likely it these days. It looks pretty likely these days. The, the, the question, I think the things that we researched that really surprised both of us is that commodities could actually outperform in a recession. And why it was so surprising is you would think if you're creating demand destruction, you know, demand for commodities has got to go down. That doesn't make any sense. And what we found out is that the commodity capital cycle doesn't necessarily correspond to the broader business cycle. And what does that mean? What is the commodity capital cycle? Well, it has to? to do with supply of commodities. If there had been a big drilling boom going into a recession, then you wouldn't have commodities outperform. But if there wasn't, and we have people that have been reading and listening to our our podcast know about the effects of ESG investing and what that has done in terms of companies, most recently drilling for energy and also in metals. And so as a result, capital spending for these companies is way down. In fact, for the oil super majors, it's 30% below their 2019 levels. And that's the big, the largest seven or eight oil companies in the world. So their capital spending is 30% below their 2019 levels and 60% below the 2010 to 2016 average. So So the bottom line here is that if there's a long period or a, a period, a meaningful period of time where these companies have not invested in the ability to bring oil out of the ground and we hit a recession and we have a very low supply of oil, it's actually possible for oil stocks to go up. And mining stocks also. The same is not only true for oil, it's probably the most most obvious. And metals to some degree are a little bit different. But the point is that in this really surprised me. In the Great Depression, the S&P was down almost 50%. And during the same time period, and this is 1929 to 1937, oil stocks were up 30%. Mining stocks were up 30%. And gold stocks increased five times. Now, I'm not sure. Gold is a precious metal, so it's a little different animal. And that was a little different time. But if you go back and you look, okay, well, let's say between 1970 and 1980, and there you had a couple of of issues. You had an oil embargo, and you had a second energy crisis and inflation. During that time, if you did an equal-weighted portfolio of miners, gold stocks, oil companies, and agricultural companies, you were up 500% versus 170% for the S&P 500. And and during the dot-com crash, the same portfolio was up. 400% 400% versus 20% for the S&P during the period. But the question is, is it always like this? Do commodities often bail you out when you go through a not-so-great period for the S&P 500? Well, as you mentioned before, it really has to do with whether the companies were spending money 
to have commodities available. And so what happened was uh, during the great financial crisis, materials and energy were two of the worst sectors of the S&P. And it really was because you had just come off a boom of spending to find those commodities. Exactly. So what about today? Will commodities help a portfolio in our current economic environment if we head into a recession? We think so. And the reason is that, like today, if you look back and see where commodities have performed, 1929, 1969, 1999, and 2020, commodities were really undervalued, cheap relative to financial assets. And, you know, when we started buying energy, energy and materials were less than 2% of the S&P 500, and that was just in 2020. And although the two sectors are now 7% of the S&P 500, it's a far cry from their 20% weighting in early 2008. So we think there's a lot more to go. What we're recommending is that you put some commodities into your portfolio. We can expect it to be volatile. Uh, This is definitely one of the more volatile assets, you know, in the S&P 500. I mean, not it's if you're going to buy commodity stocks. So while they can help your portfolio, it is important to be aware that there can be some dramatic swings over time. So you need to be prepared for a bumpy ride. Having said that, you'll take the bumps if they are upward sloping. (laughs) Exactly. We think we know what the Fed is going to do. They're certainly telegraphing very clearly that they're going to continue to raise short-term rates until they get to the four and a quarter or four and a half percent level. Take a look at the inflation numbers and decide whether to keep it there or relax. That will depend a little bit on how the economy does over that period. But at least for the next six months or so, we have a pretty clear picture about what the Fed is going to do. But we don't have a clear picture about whether inflation will actually come down in a meaningful way as quickly as they would like. And that's a big reason for why we think the general stock market will have a bumpy ride. Bond market's going to have a ride too, bumpy ride too. In fact, I was just looking the other day. I was I was shocked that like the 20-year and 30-year bond ETFs have underperformed the stock market, which I think most people would be. I, I was surprised it was that bad. Yeah, it sort of depends on how long your bonds are. So right. if you looked at sort of the average U.S. aggregate bond index, which is pretty much all investment grade bonds in the United States, that that has definitely outperformed the stock market. But if you go longer dated, they've, they've been very negative. Yeah. yeah. So it's really been a, a tough market. And energy has done well this year. The problem mm-hmm. has been when people start to believe that that Powell is actually going to be able to fix the inflation problem, energy will sell off. If we're right, and it really is a supply problem that he can't fix, then that's really where you want to be. So when you use those opportunities to, to buy the stocks. Well, and the other uh, uh, way of looking at it is, even if demand destruction takes place, Will enough demand be destroyed to bring it back down to the levels of existing supply and maybe temporarily, which is partly why you have volatility in commodities, but ultimately energy usage goes up over time. So you can only really have a temporary period of this kind of destruction. Thanks for listening. If you would like to reach us, please visit our website 2xwealth.com.
2xwealth.ingles.net. We can be reached by email, Lori at 2xwealth.ingles.net or Lisa at 2xwealth.ingles.net. Until next time.